the fight for women astronauts and dinosaurs on Venus. You're listening to Are We There Yet? The radio show exploring space exploration. Hi, I'm Brendan Byrne. The Mercury 7 might have had the right stuff and made the headlines, but behind the scenes, 13 women were being tested to become astronauts. This hidden history of the fight for women astronauts is uncovered in Rebecca Siegel's new book, To Fly Among the Stars. We'll speak with Siegel about the program and the lasting impressions these women left on the trajectory of gender equality in spaceflight. Then, as astronomers discover more and more planets outside our solar system, how do we know what they're made of? Our panel of expert scientists answers a listener question about uncovering the stuff that makes a planet and what's hidden on its surface. That's on this week's I'd Like to Know segment. But first, let's take a look at the latest space news stories making headlines. It's a launch nearly a decade in the making, but concerns over coronavirus mean there won't be many people out at Kennedy Space Center to watch it. NASA Administrator Jim Bridenstine is urging people to stay at home and watch the launch of SpaceX's Crew Dragon capsule, carrying the first astronauts to launch from the U.S. since the retirement of the space shuttle in 2011. We're asking people to stay at home, to watch from home. We want them engaged. We want them to participate. We want them to tell their friends and family. But we also want them to watch from a place that's not the Kennedy Space Center. Um, So I think that's important. The launch is a critical test for NASA's commercial crew program. It's the first human test launch of the $6 billion program. NASA veteran astronauts Bob Behnken and Doug Hurley will be in the capsule on a trip to the International Space Station. The mission is currently scheduled to launch May 27th. Stay up to date on the latest space news. Visit WMFE.org slash space or give me a follow on Twitter. I'm at SpaceBrendan. The first U.S. astronauts to launch to space were men. The Mercury 7 were handpicked for their test pilot skills for a new program aimed at putting humans in space and paving the way for future programs like Apollo to go to the moon. One requirement of the program? You had to be a dude. Well, that didn't stop some researchers from studying just how well-suited women would be for a space mission. Thirteen women were selected for a private medical study looking at the prospects of female astronauts. Author Rebecca Siegel chronicles their story and the impact these women had on gender equality in space exploration in her new young adult book, To Fly Among the Stars. She joins us now to talk about their stories, but first, she explains how she discovered the Mercury 13 in the first place. So I found this story back in 2016. I was doing what I think every nonfiction writer does in their off time, which is I was just tooling around the internet. Um, And I was reading about Sally Ride, and I sort of just stumbled upon a fact about these women that were called the Mercury 13, and I didn't know anything about them. Um, And in case your listeners don't know who the Mercury 13 were, it was a group of women who back in the early 1960s underwent a privately funded version of the Project Mercury astronaut tests. And despite the fact that they performed well in those tests, they were never considered actual astronaut candidates by NASA um, because they couldn't meet NASA's astronaut requirements. So back in 1959, NASA wanted the first astronauts to be military test pilots with jet flight experience. And at the time, women weren't allowed to fly in the military. So these women were never really considered um, viable candidates for the job. However, I still found that story really interesting. So I started kind of digging around, trying to find more about these women. And I have to be honest, what I was finding was just 
sort of confusing for me. They Their story appears in so many um, history textbooks, but always as sort of a parenthetical sidebar kind of a thing. Like, oh, back in the 19, early 1960s, women tried to become astronauts. They weren't qualified. And so nothing came of it at the end. And I thought that cannot be the end of the story. And so I started reading more and more. And what I found was really a story about pilots and hopes and ambitions and struggle and gender politics. And I have to tell you, I haven't stopped thinking about this story since 2016. It's been slightly annoying, I'm sure, for my family, but ultimately produced, I think, a really amazing story. It is It is a fantastic story. Um, can you kind of like tell us a bit about these women? Who were they? Where when women weren't in aviation through the military, they they still somehow found themselves in planes and then found themselves in this program. How did they get there? So the thirteen women in this book were all pilots. Um, most of them were career pilots. Some of them were hobbyists, but they came from a variety of backgrounds. Most were middle class, you know, who worked hard to afford their flight lessons. Some were quite poor, and one, um, Janie Hart. She was the wife of Phil Hart, the senator from Michigan. She was really wealthy. Um, but they all had this thing in common, which was that they were all in love with flying airplanes. Um, and that's saying something because in the 50s and 60s, getting into an airplane at all for anybody, man or woman, was tricky. But getting into an airplane for a woman meant overcoming all kinds of obstacles. Um, not only did they have to be able to afford their flight lessons and find a flight instructor who would teach them, but they also had to get past this notion that flying was a man's job or something that was only appropriate for men. And what's interesting is looking at this group of different women who were different ages, you know, the youngest was 22 and the oldest was 39, you know, and they lived all over the United States doing all different kinds of jobs, but they had this common thread between them, which was that they were all quite ambitious, uh, very driven, brave, patriotic. And in those first years of the space race, they were all really captivated by that idea that maybe if they were good enough pilots, they might be able to become astronauts as well. And that's something that, you know, they had in common with the Mercury 7, who I'm sure your listeners will know. These guys, John Glenn, Alan Shepard, Scott Carpenter, you know, these aviators who tested to become astronauts and went through this really grueling invasive process in order to become our first space pilots, um, they also had those same personality traits where they were just driven, independent, very smart, and very hopeful about their future in astronautics. The, the, the book kind of parallels them as, as, it, um, as it moves forward and you, and you get to see what the Mercury 7 were doing um, in comparison to what the women were doing. And, and a lot of the testing was, was similar. And, and I found that aspect of the book to be the most fascinating is is these tests that they performed on these these 13 women and then the fact that that evidence is just gone now right <laughs> i mean what yeah. what happened with first of all talk about these tests and then you know this quest of you trying to track down these tests and, and it's not there anymore what happened to it just to back up a little bit so at the very beginning of this process you know it's the first years at nasa and NASA's Astronaut Selection Committee needs to find the best people to fly in space, which we didn't know very much about what spaceflight would do to human body at the time. So really what that meant was let's get somebody really smart, physically fit, um, have good mental health, and have proven themselves in these situ in situations that are similar to what we think spaceflight will be like. And ultimately that meant finding pilots who were um, healthy, young, 
had, um, and were able to handle stress well. And so in order to find those people, NASA was putting these guys through these really intense tests. They were a series of medical, psychological, and stress adaptability tests. And they tested everything about them. You know, they tested their hearts, their lungs, um, the contents of their stomachs. They tested their vision, their hearing, their adaptability to vertigo. So one of the tests that they did was um, inject supercooled liquid into their inner ear to um, freeze the bones inside their ear, which induces vertigo. And then what the doctors would do is then they would stand back and time these pilots to see how fast they could recover. Um, it sounded horrible. Everybody said it was it incredibly awful. painful. <laughs> it sounds terrible. Right. And, then, and then they had to do the whole test on the other ear, which sounds even worse because you would know what was coming. But what's interesting is that about a year after the Mercury 7 underwent these tests, this group of women began undergoing their own privately funded version of those same tests and they were performing well. However, we don't know exactly how well they performed because we don't know where their test results went. For the most part, there's some um, data from one of their tests. It was this bicycle test that they had to ride a bike against an increased um, incline to see how they could perform. And on that test, we know that the women performed about on par with the men. Um, however, the rest of the tests are gone. The test results are gone. And I think even the fact that they're lost reflects the cultural attitude of the time. You know, the fact that we don't know where those tests went shows that people were not taking this women astronaut testing program seriously. If they were, those tests would be enshrined with the rest of the data that we have from that period. You know, if you spend any time in space history communities, people are always showing the pictures that they have of their dad and John Glenn and or like a ticket stub that John Glenn signed. These things have become these treasures of American history. And the fact that a big stack of papers from the Loveless um, Medical Clinic in Albuquerque, New Mexico, which was the place where these men and women underwent their medical testing, the fact that that data is gone just shows how dismissive people were of this entire project. The the argument that was made by advocates to put women into the astronaut corps was that, you know, they were physically fitter, uh, but more importantly, they were they were smaller, they ate less, they breathed less, um, which is important when you're packing a, a capsule for survival, um, which they argued made them good candidates for these first flights. W where was the pushback on having women in the astronaut corps? at NASA? What, 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 was, what was their reasoning why they, they couldn't be a part of this program? Sure. Well, the short answer is that women were not selected for those Mercury flights because women were never seriously considered for those Mercury flights. Um, the testing program that these women underwent was not done through NASA. It was a privately funded research program conducted by this guy named Dr. Loveless. He was a chairman of NASA's Committee on Life Sciences at the time. But his research project was separate from NASA. But beyond that, these women weren't chosen to become astronauts because people at NASA weren't thinking about women at NASA, as mm -hmm. astronauts yet. And, and in their quest to remedy that, some of these women even went to Congress, right? I mean, how, how, did, how did that go? So in the summer of 1962, um, two of the women, Jerry Cobb and Janie Hart, took their fight to Washington, D.C., um, in a special hearing in the House of Representatives, where they basically argued that NASA's astronaut requirements, which remember were that in those first years that they wanted astronauts to be military test pilots with jet flight experience. And these were two things that women simply could not achieve. 
And so Cobb and Hart went to Congress arguing that NASA was discriminating against women by having those astronaut requirements. Like they were saying, this is gender discriminatory because 50% of the population cannot meet the qualifications that this agency has set out. And, you know, um, at face value, I think that this hearing looked like it was going to be good for the women because they were getting attention. People were listening to their concerns. They were taking it seriously enough to have a hearing in the House of Representatives, but it was a total flop. Jerry Cobb testified talking about why sh women should be considered as viable astronaut candidates. And Janie Hart gave this amazing testimony where she argued basically that while it's fine for women who want to be homemakers and who want to stay home with their children, she said it's also fine that for some women, the PTA is not enough. She was basically saying, we are entering into this new phase in American culture where women are leaving the house and these career doors need to be open for them. Um, so after these two women, both of them were astronaut test subjects, gave their testimonies, then this woman named Jackie Cochran walks in and she is gonna give her testimony. And so a little background on Cochran, she had actually funded the women's astronaut testing program. Um, she was a really wealthy woman. She uh, was a famous aviator. She owned a cosmetics empire. She was this dynamo, you know, Americans knew about her, but somewhere along the line, she had decided that she changed her mind. She no longer supported this women's astronaut testing program. And there's some suggestion that the reason she was no longer supporting it was because she had been excluded from it. So she was in her 50s, which was too old to become an astronaut by these guidelines. And she had tried to actually undergo some of the astronaut tests that the other women were taking, and she was denied permission to do so. And so there's some evidence that maybe she was mad that she wasn't mm -hmm. included in this process, but she argued in the House of Representatives that she didn't support this program. She thought it was too small, too limited. The results were not going to accurately reflect a whole gender. And so what she did is she presented NASA with this sort of attractive argument, which was basically saying, we're not going to accept women astronauts right now, but we will later in the future after we've done a lot more work. And that sort of bought the agency some wiggle room to say, oh, we're, we're not against women. We're just not going to take any at the moment. And that let NASA proceed with Gemini and Apollo, you know, ultimately working towards that goal of getting a human on the moon. Now, at the end of this trial, um, John Glenn and Scott Carpenter both testified and they both argued that, no, NASA wasn't discriminating against women, that, in fact, to be an astronaut, you did need to be a test pilot and you did need to have jet flight experience. And um, this is where John Glenn said this really famous line, which was, um, men go off and fly the airplanes and fight the wars. Um, and basically, he said the fact that women are not in this field is a fact of our social order. And when Glenn said that, he wasn't justifying the discrimination against women, but he was sort of explaining it like, okay, the fact that women can't be astronauts isn't something we should be arguing with. It's just how the world is. And I think for these women, that was what they were up against. You know, this notion that the world has some spheres that are appropriate for men and some that are appropriate for women. And these, these women just weren't ready to accept that. 
How, how did their work kind of change the, as you write in the book, the, the trajectory of the American space program? What what effects did their fight have getting to the, the gender politics out of spaceflight, if it had any effect at all? You know, it. I would like to say that all their hard work paid off and they all went into space. <laughs> um, but, you know, uh, none of the women in the Mercury 13 made it to space. And in fact, we didn't get women astronaut candidates until 1978. And then beyond that, a woman pilot, a woman didn't pilot a spacecraft until Eileen Collins did it in 1995. So it was a long, long road to get women aviators into the positions they wanted in American space flight. But that's not to say that these women didn't have an impact on the way the American crewed space flight developed. Um, But there was a lag, a big lag. So this all wrapped up right around 1963. And it was 15 years before we saw women being welcomed into the astronaut corps. And even then they weren't pilots. They were mission specialists. They were scientists, you know, researchers. And that's, that was great. That was a huge leap forward, but that wasn't what these women, these original pilots had wanted. These women wanted to see a woman fly a spacecraft. And, you know, in 1995, when Eileen Collins did, she piloted the space shuttle, um, several of these women were there for the launch and they were able to finally see their work pay off. As you mentioned, there is still a gender gap in the U.S. astronaut corps. NASA's working to remedy that. But, I mean, what do you think some of these women would say now? They, They were there in 95 to see the women, a woman pilot the space shuttle. But we've had some other firsts um, for females. We had the first all-female spacewalk recently. What do you think some of these women would say about the advances uh, women are making in the astronaut corps? You know, that's a good question. I think most of the women would be absolutely thrilled to see um, what's happening today in crewed spaceflight. You know, the all-women spacewalk was this monumental experience. And I think most of these women would be crying tears of joy to see it happen. But I think there's also a source of, or a sense of um, disappointment or that some of their joy would be a little guarded because it has been so long coming. And when you think about so many dreams that weren't achieved because of this um, gender discrimination. So Jerry Cobb passed away shortly before the first all-women spacewalk was scheduled to occur. And that was the one that of course was canceled, you know, famously because they didn't have two spacesuits to fit the astronauts. And I think that incident for Jerry Cobb would have been simply one more time that she watched something really frustrating stand in the way of her gender. But I also think there would have been a part of her that would have been thrilled that there were women, you know, taking these incredible space flights and working in this huge variety of jobs in space. I think, you know, that's part of it as well. Mm -hmm. Finally, Rebecca Siegel, um, what do you hope your readers take away from this book? Oh, that's a good question. So I should say that this book is um, written for middle grade readers, which is a tween, early teen age group. And I hope that kids in this age group can read this book and get really, really excited about what the future could hold for them. You know, these are the kids that are part of the generation that will help colonize the moon. It's going to be part of our Mars projects. There is this giant new world of um, space exploration that is uniquely available to these kids. You know, um, the technology is expanding so quickly that what was available to me as a middle grader is so different from what these kids could potentially do when they grow up. And so I hope that 
this book, which is a history book about largely things that we didn't do right, you know, in the 60s, um, I hope that it helps kids think about their own lives and their own futures in an optimistic way. You know, all of the pilots in this book, men and the women, were incredibly hardworking. And through their hard work, they all saw really um, amazing rewards. And I hope that that's what kids can take away. We've been speaking with Rebecca Siegel. She's the author of To Fly Among the Stars, The Hidden Story of the Fight for Women Astronauts. Rebecca, thank you so much. Thank you. We spoke more about that lasting impact on the astronaut corps and the challenges of writing for a young audience. I'll post that as a bonus podcast episode this week. If you listen to the show on the radio, be sure to subscribe to the podcast. All the details on how to do that are on our website at wmfe.org slash are we there yet. Still to come, how do we see what a planet is made of? Are We There Yet is back in a minute. You're listening to Are We There Yet? I'm Brendan Byrne. On this week's edition of I'd Like to Know, we've got a listener question. Clara Sklenderava asks, how can we know anything about planets that are really far away? It's a great question, especially with all the exoplanet discoveries we're hearing about lately. So I took the question to our panel of experts, UCF physicists Josh Caldwell, Addie Dove, and Jim Cooney. And Jim Cooney kicks off the conversation. This is tough. Uh, This is definitely tough, and it's right on the the leading edge of science right now, but we have to get lucky. So we have to see these planets transiting. And then we have to be able to kind of not directly, but uh, indirectly separate the light that's coming through the planetary atmosphere from the star out from the rest of the light and spread that light out using a prism and look at the spectrum of that light and try and determine what kind of composition the uh, atmosphere has. That's for the atmosphere. For the surface, what the surface is made of that uh, a lot of times is a guess based on what we think the temperature is and what the, what we think the composition of the surface is based on the overall density of the planet and, the, and other kinds of things. I don't know, maybe these other guys have smarter things to say about that, but it's, it's, it's a tough job and it's, it's digging out just this really tough to get at data from really complicated data sets. So. Yeah, so that's for exoplanets. Um, so, so in order to see planets, uh, uh, the surfaces of planets in our solar system, um, we use what's called remote sensing, is sort of the, the catch-all term for it. So it's just using telescopes at different wavelengths to look at um, the surfaces of these planets. And so with that, we see light reflected off the surface of the planet or off the atmosphere of the planet. Um, and we can look at light at different wavelengths and use that to determine what the chemical composition is. So this is the way we do any sort of spectroscopy um, on Earth. Um, We do the same processes on uh, other planetary bodies. And we can compare, for instance, like the rock reflectances we see on Mars to what rocks we have here on Earth and make estimates of what we think the compositions are. For Uh, Some of the outer solar system bodies, right, that's even harder because things like moons in the outer solar system, it's much, we have much less data unless we've had like Cassini or um, other missions that have done flybys to get more up close uh, imaging and and data of those bodies. Light is really an incredibly powerful messenger, you know, it, uh, uh, for something that in some sense is so simple, this electromagnetic wave, because of the way it interacts with matter in, in all different ways, tells us so much. It can tell us the temperature, the composition, uh, by combining with other things, how things are moving. Um, so it's really just a tremendous amount of information that we get from those things. And even when we send a spacecraft like Cassini to Saturn or the rovers to Mars, a lot of what we're learning about it is still what Addie was saying. It's remote sensing. It's 
taking images at all the different wavelengths and our eyes only see this very narrow, tiny slice of all the wavelengths available, but we can build instruments that see all those different wavelengths and compare them to what we see on the ground. So it's, it's astonishing really how much we can learn just by doing that. Now, are we bound by what we've observed here on Earth? Like I'm thinking to Addie's example of, of looking at how light reflects off of you know, Martian rocks, and we can look at rocks that we have down here on Earth. What if, what if it's something that, that we've not observed? Can we, can we figure out what it is? So every atom, so the, the basic answer to that is yes. Um, every atom, every molecule has a specific spectrum, um, specific wavelengths uh, or frequencies that it will either emit or absorb light at. Um, and so just using that, we can tell, for instance, like if it's methane or water on the surface. Um, and so we can use some of those basic uh, comparisons to see um, if it's like a silicate rock versus a carbon rock or something like that and get some basic analysis um, of what the rock types are. There are a lot of things we see in terms of like ices, for instance, and in some places in the outer solar system that we're still trying to understand what some of those spectra might be. Um, because we don't have great analogs for some of them here on Earth. And this this has yeah. to get me wondering about how early astronomers were able to kind of identify what our even closest planets were made of without having these instruments. Um, how how did they do it? Did, did they do it? Did we did we know what what Mars was made of when we first discovered it? No, no. I mean they they, they famously. <laughs> They screwed this up a lot, right? The, a lot of the early astronomers, and not even that early, in the late 1800s and stuff, still thought that Mars had water on the surface, right? They thought that the Mars was made, had canal system or something like that to take uh, water from the, or the, the poles to the equatorial region and things like this. It's, it's challenging. So the early astronomers did not know. It wasn't really until the, uh, the advent of spectroscopy and, and the maturation of that uh, that process that, that we've learned. For Venus, which is uh, completely cloud covered, so you can't see the surface at all. So you have sort of zero data that didn't stop people from saying, therefore, you know, there are clouds, therefore <laughs> the surface is like the Jurassic Park, you know, <laughs> on Earth. It must be hot and steamy and teeming with life and all of that. Dinosaurs on Venus. <laughs> That's not a thing, huh? Well, it not is if you thing. look back not in some thing. old books. It's great. It's not a thing. <laughs> so let's be clear. There aren't dinosaurs on Venus. There are no dinosaurs on Venus. Josh, if we've never seen the surface, how do we know? <laughs> we have we... seen the surface, Jim. Oh. <laughs> we've seen the surface with radar, uh, so that can look through the clouds. And then we've also seen the surface with some probes that have gone down beneath the atmosphere. Right. There are a handful we've measured of the temperature. We've measured the temperature, and it will melt lead. So those are some powerful uh, dinosaurs down there then. Thick skin. <laughs> <laughs> well, so, so spectroscopy is, is, is kind of what put us into the new age of, of understanding planets. Um, what's the next step? Um, I think I know what the answer is going to be to this, but uh, what's going to be next in, in kind of uh, uncovering what planets are made of? Better spectroscopy. <laughs> <laughs> get, a, get a piece of it and bring it back here. Yeah. And that's, that's on the horizon, so, right? Yeah. Yes. So, well, we've done done that famously for the moon and that's in the works for mars there's a few asteroids that we're bringing some samples back from so very exciting things happening um when it comes to what planets are made of um but speaking with my weekly panel of expert scientists from the university of central florida they are josh caldwell jim cooney and addy dove thank you all for being here thanks you can get their podcast walk about the galaxy wherever you get this show or visit walkaboutthegalaxy.com 
Are We There Yet? is a production of WMFE and WMFV. Editorial guidance this week from Matthew Petty. Our director of content is Steve Yasko. Support for Are We There Yet? comes from our listeners. Until next week, I'm Brendan Byrne. Thanks for listening.